Now, when I'm very good and do as I am told, I'm Mama's little angel and Papa says I'm good as gold. The stars are ageless. You brought this on yourself. What do you think of when you think of a hag? Over the course of several interviews, this was the first question I asked every single one of my contributors. So I've been thinking about this a lot. And w when I think of a hag, I think it's quite a broad term, but for me, it's a woman over 50 who for one reason or another just doesn't give a fuck about being likable or graceful. And I think that she's scary because she operates outside the control of the patriarchy. Oh, wow. I mean, what a question. Um, so the immediate qualifiers that come to my mind are older women, but specifically a decline of feminine attractiveness that comes with age. I think hag is, I don't know, maybe intended to be like a pejorative about women suddenly becoming like unfuckable, you know, obviously from the perspective of, of the desiring gaze of men. Um, but I actually would prefer to think of that kind of unfuckability as maybe something even internalized that um, the, the subject herself perceives her, her own erotic drive as kind of on the decline and, and becomes insecure about it. But also hag makes me think of like, <laughs> I hate to say it, but it, it makes me think of like as someone very shrill or off-putting. Um, I don't know why, but it, like the, the Karen meme comes to my mind, <laughs> you know, someone like complaining or a nuisance or something. I think they kind of embodied what we saw as glamour and beauty for so long. And so as they age and they show signs of decay in a very real and physical way, they can kind of symbolize for us the fear that we have of our own decay and our own aging. I think there's also a kind of gleeful schadenfreude in it as well where we can look upon these women who had so much and were give, given so many gifts and blessed with their beauty um, to see them taken down a notch as well um, kind of adds, I think, an extra layer to exploitation that makes it not just explicitly horror, but also, I think, very um, ingrained with how we perceive our own pop culture as well. Um, so... I think it's it's kind of that dual layer of that fear of older women, of of women losing their use in society, um, but also this kind of relationship that we've already had with these women over time, and kind of attacking them in a, in a sense, or or enjoying that we suddenly have the upper hand on them. 
hashtag. A hag is a word that I would never use about any non-fictional person. It's a, one of those awful words. I can only think of a sort of legitimate use of the word hag if you were talking about like a witch or a devil from a fairy tale. Howsoever, I am aware that we're talking about the phases of a movie star's life and the kind of roles. And you know, in terms of thinking about cinema, I think that the word hag can be like weirdly quite empowering because it's a bit like saying I'm not going to try and play the person I was 30 years ago. It's about women saying no, if you think that look this way, maybe I'm going to play the bad girl, finally. For me, the word hag actually strikes a little bit of fear into me. I think because it's, because I wrote the book as I was turning 40 and I think as you get into your 40s, there's this idea of losing a part of yourself, losing your looks a little bit, um, the aging process, um, losing your value as a woman. And I think the word hag kind of, um, for me, it, it's fearful because it's a dreaded word. If you're called a hag, it kind of means that you've lost those parts of yourself as a woman that you kind of, that are valued in society. Um, your use, you know, I suppose, in terms of your fertility and, and your use in terms of your looks. Um, so for me, it's a very insulting word. Um, I think it's used to demean women in, in some ways. And uh, actually, if you've seen White Lotus, the second series, uh, Jennifer Coolidge's character is called a hag and older women are called hags. And, and I thought, ah, yeah, there, there it is. That's the word. It's the way of, of insulting women at a certain age who are seen to be silly or seem to be old or seem to be um, wrinkled and, and yeah, without all, without all those attractive qualities they once had. When I think of a hag, before I started researching this series, I always thought of the cat lady from The Simpsons. You know, the one that screams and wails and throws cats at people? Since then, that idea has morphed and expanded as I've explored the films of a little subgenre known as hag horror, psycho bitty, or grand damn guignol. Welcome to the Final Girls podcast. I'm Anna Bogutska, your podcast host. And in this series of the show, I'm journeying through the great, the bad, and the very nasty films of hagsploitation. Before we begin, let me credit my primary source, which is the book Crazy Old Ladies by Carolyn Young, who you will have heard from in previous episodes. And throughout this episode in particular, you'll also hear contributions from podcaster Maha Albadravi and Freudian film critic Mary Wilde. So far in this series, I've spoken about some stone-cold masterpieces like Sunset Boulevard, the apex mountain of hag horror, whatever happened to Baby Jane, as well as some of the lesser-known titles of one of its stars, Betty Davis, including The Nanny and Dead Ringer. Last episode, I talked exclusively about Davis, who, whether by choice or by necessity, dedicated the last leg of her career to acting in horror or horror-adjacent films. In this episode, I'm taking a bit of a wider lens, and I'll be going over the years of and I'll be going over the years of the 60s that I've called jokingly the peak hag era. Those couple of years that came directly after the commercial and critical success of Baby Jane. In 1964 alone, four hag horror films were released. 
Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, which we talked about in episode three. Straight Jacket, directed by William Castle and starring Joan Crawford. Another Castle film, The Nightwalker, starring Barbara Stanwyck in what would be her last ever theatrical role. And Lady in a Cage with Olivia de Havilland, who also starred in Sweet Charlotte. The following year, 1965, saw the release of Hammer Horror's The Nanny, which I've already covered, and Frantic, sometimes called Die Die My Darling, with Tallulah Banghead in her final screen role. It is obvious that a trend was in motion. And throughout the 60s, the formula was set. Get yourself a female movie star over the age of 40, maybe out of work for a few years, stick her an unflattering dress, with some bad makeup or no makeup, put her in a creepy old house and film her going nuts. Some of these films are very much B-movies, exploitation fair, thematically unambitious with scripts operating beneath the level of their on-screen talent. But even with that in mind, I'm so drawn to them and curious about how they work with the screen persona of these actresses and with these recurring ideas that, although a bit calcified into trope, still hint at how uncomfortable we are with aging in general and with aging women in particular. So let's get into them. And let's start with two William Castle productions. The first, about a madwoman axe murderer, and the second, about a madwoman with a dream lover. When I put those clothes on, something happens to me. Something frightening. Joan Crawford met horror gimmick impresario William Castle at a party where the director anxiously pitched her the script written by Robert Bloch, the author of Psycho. Castle had been so inspired by the twist in Alfred Hitchcock's film that he had made his own version called Homicidal just a few years before. The director was already well known in the industry as the quote, king of gimmicks. After giving attendees an insurance policy that guaranteed a payout if they died of fright at a screening of Macabre, organizing a skeleton to float over cinema goers for screenings of The House on Haunted Hill, and setting up buzzers under random seats and showings of The Tingler. Stars and contents don't mean much at the box office anymore, Castle said. Gimmicks, surprise, and shock, that's what draws the crowds. Joan, eager to keep the momentum going after the success of Baby Jane, agreed to star in Straight Jacket if Castle agreed to her terms. More money? A chilled temperature on set to keep her skin firm? That her dressing room be always stocked with brandy, 100% proof vodka and beluga caviar? Rehearsals, which Castle didn't usually do? And for her character to be aged down from 50 to 40? With all of those terms met, they got to shooting the film. Straight Jacket starts with a voiceover. 
extra, extra, read all about it, Love Slayer Insane. Lucy Harbin was declared legally insane today. In the first five minutes of the movie, Lucy, that's Joan's character, takes an axe and beheads her cheating husband and his mistress while they're sleeping in their bed. In those first scenes as Lucy, Joan is giving it everything. She's giving melodrama, she's giving Douglas Sirk, she's giving I am a movie star and this is beneath me but I will play ball and be professional. Believing that a more dialed up performance would guarantee a hit film, Joan strokes that axe like it's a gift from the heavens and with tears in her eyes she brings it down over and over again on the sleeping cheaters. The film's story picks up 20 years later when Lucy, now much more demure, is released from a psychiatric hospital and attempts to establish a relationship with her daughter Carol, who was in the next room when the murders happened. When a new spat of murders start occurring in town, everyone assumes Lucy is to blame. Now, Straightjacket has a lot of truly deranged mummy issues that I'll delve in deeper in the next episode. But listen, you don't come to this movie for a nuanced mental health discussion. You come to see Joan Crawford go through the throat of another woman wearing a Joan Crawford face mask. Like most William Castle films, it's all a bit silly, but well-intentioned. Critics at the time praised Crawford's performance while simultaneously putting down the film, with one of them writing that it's time to get Joan Crawford out of those house dress horror B-movies and back into hot couture. Like I said earlier, one of the most interesting things about these films is how they use movie stars, each of which had a very particular kind of stardom. The reason Baby Jane and prior to that Sunset Boulevard work so well, it's because they're a direct interplay between the movie star personas and the roles that they were playing. They're not just cast because they're quote unquote old. And that's where I think some of these films fail in interesting ways. While in Baby Jane, for example, Crawford played a stripped-back character with no room for glamorous outfits or polished hair, in Straightjacket she insisted on the opposite, amping up the sexiness and glamour even if it didn't quite make sense for her character, and in some scenes, particularly the earlier ones, it does feel like she's sort of cosplaying herself. Barbara Stanwyck took a more subtle approach in The Nightwalker, also directed by Castle. Playing a woman who is having erotic dreams that, that are driving her blind millionaire inventor husband into a jealous rage. Literally, that's the plot. Irene, that's Stanwyck's character, is married to a much older inventor who is so insecure, he is obsessed with the idea of his wife cheating on him, even in her sleep. So we so he records everything on tape, both their conversations and her sleepy murmurings. After he dies, she inherits his money and his house, but is driven mad by these recurring dreams where a man, who she only calls the dream, keeps visiting her, marries her, but is potentially infiltrating real life as well. 
I love it. The film itself starts off wildly with what I imagine was considered quite psychedelic imagery back then, with a fist grasping an eyeball and a female silhouette writhing in the sky, like a budget version of Hitchcock's Spellbound. What are dreams? What do they mean? What do you know about the secret world you visit when you sleep? Strange figures. Strange faces, creatures that haunt our nightmares. Sometimes we watch them, and sometimes they watch us. Did you ever dream of being stared at, pursued by evil eyes, with no escape? No place to hide. Have you ever dreamed that you were flying, flying into strange places far beyond the worlds we know? Yes, that's it. Fly, fly. Maybe you Again, can get away like after most all. William Castle Fair, the Nightwalker is a bit silly. But it does stand out amongst other psycho biddy films by letting Stanwyck infuse her character with the sort of allure, pride, and sophistication that she also embodied in her earlier roles. And in a way, it also rebels against her image as a femme fatale by making Irene very much a stoic victim of men who are obsessed with controlling her. Additionally, in an act of rebellion against the forced anti-aging obsession of actresses, Stanwyck, who was 56 at the time of filming The Nightwalker, kept a streak of grey in her hair, saying later on that all the tensions created by wanting to be forever young age one faster, and referring to her peers who were trying to combat aging, she said that they look like what they are, battle-scarred veterans of their lost war against time. Tell me the truth. There is a man, isn't there? Isn't there? Yes. Yes, I do have a lover. He comes to me every night. He holds me in his arms. He's young, handsome, and tender. He's everything I've always wanted. Everything you're not. Who is he? Tell me his name. I wish to God I could, but he has no name. He's only a dream. You're lying, lying! Only to myself, only when I'm asleep. I'm trying to pretend that I lead a normal life with someone who loves me, don't you understand? I know why my dreams seem real. Because when I'm awake, my life with you is like a nightmare! The truth! Tell me the truth! All right, here's the truth! My lover is only a dream, but he's still more of a man than you! Both Crawford in Straightjacket and Stanwyck in Nightwalker bring a gravitas and a seriousness to their roles that the films in no way deserve. And this dissonance between performance and film works to give them a sort of campy eeriness. You cannot take these films seriously, but you do take these women seriously. Here's Maha Al-Badrawi on the gravitas that these actresses bring to these films, to these B-movies. Absolutely. I think that the like Western culture doesn't know what to do with women after they pass childbearing age. So I think that, you know, that's a huge reason why these movies were dismissed and not talked about very seriously. 
And and I think that's a real shame because when you actually look at them, when you actually watch these films, you realize that these women bring so much to these characters. And the reason they bring so much to these characters is because they're very, very, very skilled. They still have, sorry, even me saying they still have as if they lost anything. Like they have star power, like watching Lana Turner, like walking around this um, like ridiculous mansion, wearing the clothes the way that she wears them, like just seeing like Elizabeth Taylor bring her charisma to the screen. That's a fucking privilege. And I don't know, like just looking at them objectively, why would you dismiss them? Because they're very good. They're very interesting to watch. And at their age, which, you know, again, what, what they would have been about middle age in these films, they, they bring more gravitas than, you know, than they had when they were in their twenties, you know, like walking around in Zigbell Follies. The emphasis on costume and makeup in hack horror continues with these films, but instead of amplifying these hack characters, it almost strips them away, strips their attractiveness away. Which is why the Nightwalker and Straightjacket stand out too. Barbara Stanwyck looks poised, glamorous and elegant, with wearing tight-fitting, elegant suits. There is a real dignity to her even as she's gaslit by a succession of men who seem to be very interested in just making her feel bad about anything she does, even when all Irene wants to do is to have a nap and have some wet dreams about drinking champagne with a hot man. And although Straightjacket is a bit more interested in gore and has heads rolling around and a lot of axe murders, Joan Crawford does try to bring a semblance of elegance into the scenes where she's not actually wielding an axe. So she's sort of operating on two levels here. On the one hand, she's kind of doing a cosplay of Joan Crawford with her signature walk and the fuck me heels and the and leaning into her sexiness. And after her character Lucy is released from the psychiatric hospital, She's bringing it down and trying to be a woman who has reassembled herself and is truly regretful and just wants to have a relationship with her daughter. These films constantly skirt around being either empowering or demeaning. At their worst, it's about taking away any semblance of power from these characters, reveling in driving these women mad, sometimes quite literally putting them in a cage for others to poke and ogle at. Like in Lady in a Cage, where Olivia de Havilland plays Cornelia Hillard, a wealthy widow who becomes trapped in the elevator she has installed in her townhouse to help her get from one floor to another as she recovers from a broken hip. She becomes trapped in this elevator while her son is out of town, with no way of reaching anyone and during a sweltering heatwave. It's while she's in this precarious position that a group of opportunistic youths, led by James Caan in his very first screen role, break into her house, taunting and torturing her. Wait a minute. Please listen. Take it all. You can have anything you want. Take anything you want. Take anything you want. But in the name of humanity, help me get out of this horrible cage. <laughs> Couldn't you let me out of this cage? Please. Please! Oh, what? Who? What monsters? Oh, do you steal and get out? Steal and get out? 
would have more simple compassion than you. What? You're, you're something holier than thou? Huh? You're something, uh... You ain't no animal. I'm a human being. A thinking, feeling creature. The lady in the cat the lady in the cage attempt. The lady in the cage pits two generations against one another, unwittingly contrasting two generations and two types of actor. The living memory of the old Hollywood studio system in Olivia de Havilland, and the upcoming brash naturalism of the new Hollywood in James Caan. Here, the hag is asked to disappear. Here. The hag is violently asked to disappear, to make way for a younger crowd, to not interfere, and if she won't, she'll be made to. In Crazy Old Ladies, author Carolyn Young compares Lady in a Cage to other premises in the title type of films like Phone Booth or Snakes on a Plane, but the film was aiming higher. Inspired by the New York City blackout of 1959, Writer Luther Davis wanted to convey the claustrophobia of a big city and the disregard for others that he had observed. Lady in a Cage was the first role Olivia de Havilland accepted in six years and was attracted by Davis's exploration of an uncaring society that would revert back to brutality as soon as there was a flaw in their system. The most horrible thing is the detachment of the bystander, isn't it? People who watch and do nothing, de Havilland said. Her character, Mrs. Hillard, is not exactly a hag at the start, but is driven increasingly haggard by the treatment she is subjected to by the intruders into her home. As the film progresses, all while she's stuck in the elevator in her house, her elegance melts away. She becomes haggard, sweaty and grimy. Her clothes are half torn off her body. She is more and more terrified, looking on as the intruders ransack her house and threaten her. Mrs. Hillard puts herself through an ordeal trying to get out of the elevator and that house, all the way screaming for help. And eventually, she too is reduced to violence. Including blinding the character played by James Caan with a makeshift shiv. Now, I might be giving the film too much credit here, but the lady in the cage seems to imply that if even a wealthy white woman can't get help in that situation, what hope is there for the rest? The following year, Hammer Horror would release Fanatic, also called Die Die My Darling, echoing a phrase that Tallulah Banghead's character utters in the film. Like many psychobitty films before it and after it, Fanatic pits two women against each other. One older, Mrs. Trefoil, that's the one played by Banghead, and Patricia, played by Stephanie Powers, the former fiancé of Mrs. Trefoil's son, who comes to visit her in England to pay her respects after his death. The first film of Silvio Narizano, who would next go on to do The Beloved Georgie Girl, 
Fanatic misuses Tallulah's electric, sexually mischievous energy by forcing her into the role of a religious fanatic, obsessed with her dead son and with finding anyone to blame for his death. Tallulah Bankhead, who lived one of the most raucous lives a film and stage star of her time could have lived, plays Mrs. Trefoy with no makeup, wearing stark, ill-fitting dresses, and is consistently framed in close-ups that accentuate her age. Mrs. Trefoy absolutely hates Patricia, and in possibly the only great scene of the film, has a meltdown in the privacy of her room in front of a mirror, covering her face with red lipstick and chugging booze from a hidden bottle. Good morning. What are you wearing? The devil's color. Go upstairs immediately and put on something proper. Yes, Mrs. Trefoil. It's almost seven o'clock. We must not fall behind the day's routine. Just like Gloria Swanson had done in Sunset Boulevard and Betty and Joan had done in Baby Jane, Tallulah lent real-life portraits of herself from her 20s to be used in a scrapbook belonging to her character. After the screenwriter, the great horror author Richard Matheson wrote in a detail about Mrs. Trefoy having been an actress by way of explaining away her religious mania and her anti-sex fervor. Hag horror films often deal with sex, often portraying the sexuality of older women as deviant in some way, which is very explicit in films like Sunset Boulevard and The Nightwalker, but also in future hag films like Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker or The Fan. It's almost as if, as women age, they're driven mad by aging out of their fuckability or being confronted by younger women who perhaps are having more sex than they are. They're damned if they want it or if they don't, and they're damned if they're getting it and if they're not. Remember how Norma Desmond was portrayed as a deviant for having a younger lover in Sunset Boulevard? The horror is always based around their kind of failure as women, failure to be nurturing, failure to maintain their beauty, failure to not stay young. Um, You know, like it's, I think it's quite a, I think it, you know, it could have been good, but it ended up being quite limiting in my opinion. The idea of faded stars itself implies a loss of value and by implication, the lack of value of older women. Words like faded imply not just faded looks, but faded talent, which frankly is ridiculous considering the names we're talking about. The pitting of women against each other in these films, whether they're the same age or not, hints at the scarcity of roles available for older actresses, even in projects that were considered beneath them. And that's something that has not left the news even recently. Think of Michelle Yeoh's acceptance speech at last year's Academy Award ceremony, where she picked up the Best Actress Oscar. And for instance, even Straight Jacket, there was some controversy because there was a rumor going around that another actress, Joan Blondell, had been cast and even fitted for the role of Lucy before Joan Crawford swooped in and allegedly stole the role from her. Blondell herself later denied this, saying that she had been injured and had to let go of the role, but the press were looking for another feud of any kind. Hell, recently actresses like Dame Judi Dench and Dame Maggie Smith went viral 
by jokingly saying that it was Judy who got all the roles meant for actresses in their age bracket. If we're asked, we're going to work forever if we're asked. Jane. But you're always asked first, if I may say so. <laughs> I'm turning on you now. It's all coming out now. And if you read reviews of the time, the critical reaction to these performances kept coming back to their looks. The New York Times wrote that Olivia de Havilland cringes and wilts. And about Tallulah Banghead, they said that she is dressed in widow's weeds and looking like a doleful harridan. Sometimes the commentary on their looks was downtown cruel, like in the Time review of Dead Ringer, which said that Betty Davis's torso looks like a gunny sack full of galoshes, coarsely cosmetic head, her face looks like a YouTube photograph of Utah. And even if complimentary, the reviews seemed to imply that their value was only maintained if they had managed to maintain their looks. Like when the LA Times wrote that Barbara Stanwyck in The Nightwalker was looking trim and chic after some seasons off the screen. At the peak of their stardom, the value of these movie stars was often placed on their looks as well as their talent. Now that their looks were no longer their currency, their talent seemed to be diminishing too. Oh man, there's, there's so much to say about that. I don't even know where to start. Like... First of all, can I tell you about like my current experience of aging? Because I feel like that that feeds into that feeds into my like how I see these films now. Because like I'm, you know, like you start out your life young, you're you're young, and then next thing you know, like you're considered old. So I'm 34. I'm turning 35 this year, and all of a sudden I'm really aware of like people's attitudes to me aging because I genuinely like don't care like. I'm happy with my body. I I don't like I don't know how what I don't know how to explain it. I'm just I'm happy with my body. I'm happy with everything. I'm I'm healthy. Like um, but I feel like there's this expectation for me to suddenly like slow down aging, like, you know, wear sunscreen every day or, you know, use eye cream before before it before it becomes too late, before my wrinkles start showing. And I sometimes like, you know, people ask me how old I am for whatever reason, and you know, I say 34 or whatever, and I'm sometimes told oh you don't look 34 and I know I'm meant to take that as a compliment but I, I don't understand what's wrong with being any age um and yeah and it just feels like there is a fear of aging and it feels like to me a tool of the patriarchy because if you're busy like trying to stay young and fertile and appealing then you're not doing the real work which is destroying the patriarchy um so yeah, I just I feel like there's always this fear of aging. I think these films reflect that because one way or another, like there's always some core fear um that is of digression, you know, uh, from the chosen like sorry, from the acceptable path of womanhood. There they often um reflect around reflect a woman's failure to be maternal. Uh, you know, or to be a good mother or a good enough mother, they they reflect um, her vanity or her desire, you know, to basically like not stay in her lane, um, or they reflect, or they reflect um, her physically aging and not being ashamed of it, like like Betty Davis in whatever happened to Baby Jane, like she is kind of almost joyfully grotesque. You know, she's she's um she, she kind of revels in her physicality, and yeah, I just I feel like they reflect all of these um um these fears from a digression of like the the acceptable woman path. 
Psychobiddy films are always trying to find a reason to pity or fear these women. Sometimes it's even the fact that they live by themselves, in big houses that, the films seem to imply, are not meant for women living alone. When these hags live in grand, decrepit, unkempt or unwelcoming mansions, they're bad because they are decrepit, unkempt or unwelcoming. And if their houses are well-maintained, even fitted out with modern luxuries like Mrs. Hillard and her elevator in, La in Lady in a Cage, then they're bad because it's too much. Oppressive in their opulence, stuffy and old-fashioned. Either way, there is always a heavily designed claustrophobia in these films, and that's mostly, I think, to do with the design of these houses. Freudian film critic Mary Wilde had some incredible thoughts on what these hag houses represent. I think that, you know, it's playing on the mythology and the stereotypes of what we think a family house is supposed to be or a person living in the house is supposed to look like. You know, the house is supposed to be this um, place where we let our guard down. You know, it's supposed to be like a sanctuary where you don't have to be on edge. You don't have to be like on guard. You can actually just relax. So the fact that a lot of these things are happening inside houses um, is is touching on something un uncanny, you know, like about about the house itself. That suddenly the house becomes a battleground, an emotional battle battleground where everything is like chaotic, and you can't just um, chill out and feel safe and secure. Um, you can't rest, you know, you can't feel fulfilled. Even I'm thinking also like in the Killing Kind, like her house seems seems to be like. I don't know if she's renting out the rooms to various people. Like there's people coming in and out, you know, there's, it's very, it's a boarding house. Exactly. So there's, um, you know, the, it, it's, it's placing the house itself in kind of uncertain territory. Like it's supposed to be um, a sanctuary for the people living there, but it's also this kind of like place of comings and goings, right? And so it's it, it there's it's it just puts the whole thing um a little makes it a little bit uncertain. So um I I, I also like the fact that even if we're not talking about like emotional enmeshment in in the case of especially you know um Butcher Baker Night Nightmare Maker and the Killing Kind, um. If, if, if we're not talking about that, it can be like the spinster's house, you know, like um, where, a place where crazy cat ladies live. I mean, this is just this horrible pejorative stereotypes about women of a certain age. Um, or if it's, you know, a, a weird place where just one person lives and is like obsessive, you know, um, th then their whole house just becomes just a storage unit for their obsession. So um, it's 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 sort of just always corrupting the original ideal of the house as being a sanctuary. There's something else, something I've floated about in previous episodes, and is possibly the biggest recurring theme in Hagsportation. In both Lady in a Cage and Fanatic. Mrs. Hillard and Mrs. Trefoy are presented as domineering mothers who have pushed their sons away because of their overbearing nature. And while Mrs. Hillard in her ordeal regrets this and apologizes to her son even though he's not there, Mrs. Trefoy doubles down, blaming everyone else for her son's death. 
if the ultimate exploration of exploitation is the failure of these characters as movie stars, as women, the ultimate sin that all these films seem to explore is that of a failed mother. And that's what I'll be talking about next week. How the hag took fears around motherhood to an extreme. Thank you for listening to the Final Ghost podcast, to the fifth episode in our series on hags. Thank you so much to all my contributors, especially Maha and Mary. And I hope you come back to listen to next week's episode. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at AnnaBeDemented, and you can dive into our previous seasons where we have covered witches, vampires, female monsters, and teen horror wherever you find your podcasts. 